Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Tess Woodcraft. The vast majority of au pairs interviewed explained that they felt they were being made to do childcare and housework on the cheap. This was either, they said, because employers were themselves cash-strapped and stringing together these kind of uh, emergency arrangements, or because they said that employers seemed to have plenty of money, but they felt they were just mean, and they'd realised that calling a household employee an au, an au pair allowed for the extraction of much work for little money. It's estimated that there are about 90,000 au pairs in the UK, though there are no official figures. That means tens of thousands of families from Land's End to John O'Groats having au pairs from all around the world looking after their children. A UK nursery place, if you can find one, costs at least £1,000 a month. That's $1,500. And for many families, an au pair is the only affordable answer to the childcare crisis. Rosie Cox of Birkbeck, University of London, says the reason au pairs are cheap lies in the history of the au pair scheme. The au pair scheme was developed formally in the post-war years, although it actually um, existed before that, at the beginning of the 20th century. And it was developed as a cultural exchange programme amongst European countries, which allowed young women, and when it was developed it was only women who were allowed to take part, to travel, to live as an equal, which is the translation of au pair, with a family in another country. Au pairs were meant to provide um, help with household tasks in exchange for what was called, what it still is called, pocket money rather than pay. Um, And the experience of living with a family, living in a foreign culture and perfecting their language skills. The scheme was imagined as providing a small amount of extra household help to middle-class families who were facing the servant crisis, this terrible thing that came down on the middle classes after the Second World War where they had to do their own washing up. But it also was seen as um, a way that middle-class young women would be given training in running a home. So it was seen as preparing au pairs for the life that they had ahead of them. They're only cheaper than collective care in a nursery or an after-school club or the work of a professional nanny because what they do isn't recognised as work and they quite often are employed in very poor conditions. And these poor conditions in the sector are justified through a discourse of cultural exchange and adventure for the au pairs. One important part of the research was a detailed examination of 1,000 advertisements on the Gumtree website, which advertises everything from second-hand sofas to tree filling. Au pair ads are in a section on nannies, housekeepers and au pairs. Researcher Nikki Bush of Birkbeck details what the ads said. 31% of au pairs were asked to work for more than 25 hours a week. The average working week, including babysitting, was 387 hours a week, but there was big variation in this. The average pocket money offer was around £108 a week, 
and 14% offered an amount below the recommended £85 per week. Given that half weren't naming a figure, many people said in the ad, um, you know, salary expectations, please give your salary expectations, or pay negotiable depending on how much cleaning you want to do, things like that. 33% wanted their repair to care for a child under three, and 14% to care for a child under one. And again, you know, almost a third asking for a child under three. Many of them were asking for their pair to look after a two-year-old, two-year-old twins and a toddler, often a school-aged child and a toddler and a baby as well. So there was all these combinations of what people wanted in terms of childcare. Here are some examples. Um, so any overtime will be paid at £5 an hour. There'll be babysitting and also some weekend work. Sometimes just morning or all weekend if we go away without the children. And these children are one and four. Another example is, must be Ofsted registered. Highly responsible, enthusiastic, independent, flexible, experienced, resourceful, mature, loving, child-loving as well as loving, <laughs> reliable, accountable, punctual, and good communicator. Your role is to help with homework and inspire academic and creative development and to encourage physical activity and expression. This looks like an employment relationship. They're talking about overtime, our weekend work. Au pairs could be working for anything between 20 hours and 70 hours. Some were given no pocket money at all, so there was just board and lodging. Um, not all of them had their own room. Some ads said you'll be sharing a room with a child or you can sleep in the living room. Not all of them even lived with the host. Some had these complicated arrangements advertised where you'll, you'll be working for us but you'll be living down the road or you'll be living in a, a, <laughs> with my aunt or something. Uh, those working the longest hours were not necessarily the highest paid. The majority of au pairs, au pair ads suggested that these people were not living in working conditions that fall within the guidance provided by the government in June 2014 and the guidance previously provided by the British Au Pairs Agencies Association. The ads suggested there really is a decreasing def- uh, differentiation between au pair and nanny roles, uh, with many host families demanding au pairs who are experienced carers to look after young children on a full-time basis. So that's what the ad said, but what were the jobs like in practice? The researchers interviewed 40 au pairs from 15 countries, including Germany, France, Romania and Poland. Some au pairs interviewed received no pay and some up to £200 a week. 11 au pairs were given less than £75. 15 were paid 76 to 100 6 were paid 101 to 150 and one over £150 a week. The hours worked varied from just three hours a day to over 60 hours a week. And again, like the ads, those who worked the longest hours were by no means the highest paid. In fact, um, as with the ad data, interviews suggested that there was no relationship between the hours worked and the pocket money received. The interviews with the au pairs also allowed us to find out more about what au pairs were actually doing with their time and how much of this time was spent doing cultural activities or language learning and how much was spent doing childcare and domestic work. Au pairs were commonly replied upon to act either as full-time child care carers for preschool children and or to fill the gaps at the beginning and the end of the day so that f- parents could fill their very demanding, in some t- cases, employment requirements. Au pairs commonly cleaned the kitchen after meals, did the laundry for the whole house, hoovered the whole house at least once a week, shopped and cooked for children and sometimes for the whole family, walked and groomed pets ferried children to swimming lessons, ballet lessons, Kumon lessons and all these other activities at the end of the school day before parents got home from work. 
Interviews revealed that the au pairs of different nationalities appear to be paid and treated differently by host families and host selected au pairs on the basis of their nationality. So they had real preconceptions about what kind of au pair they wanted based on whether they wanted a German au pair or they wanted a hard-working Romanian au pair or a Polish au pair because of the work ethic. Employers were quite open uh, about this and au pairs talked about their experiences in terms of where they felt they, they fit into the ethnic hierarchy. The au pairs we interviewed from Western Europe generally talked about their work in terms of working shorter hours and being given more opportunities to study and engage in cultural exchange than those from Central and Eastern Europe. For example, Sasha from Slovakia said of her experience in a household, I wasn't allowed to do all those things which I wanted to do. For example, I wanted to go to college to learn English somewhere. I wanted to go on English courses, and my first host family wasn't very happy about it because... They said they can need me at any time, and I have to be there for that, you know. I just wasn't very happy with that. But if reality didn't measure up to their hopes and dreams, what could they do? Au pairs interviewed had no sense that there were any possibility to improve these conditions through collective action or through outside agencies. The only thing they could do was leave and either return home or find another household to employ them. For for some of those people interviewed... This was relatively straightforward. If you don't like it, just leave. Um, But for others, the period between telling the employer that they wanted to leave and moving to a new household had to be very carefully negotiated or the the au pair would face a period of homelessness in a strange country. Also, some of these au pairs were very young, so to to confront your employer like this, to negotiate this, this situation, to leave, was very difficult for some who were 17, 18, who were very, you know, alone in a, in a strange country. They, weren't, they didn't really feel part of uh, broader social networks or broader, broader services like the police or an ombudsman. Or ha- you know, they didn't really, they were, they'd arrived at an airport, they'd been taken straight to a home, they were very young, some of them had quite limited understanding of where they, they even were. So it's quite hard for them to actually do this, OK, I can just leave. The researchers also talked to the host families, though it must be said that they found this more difficult because few were willing to be interviewed and those that were could be counted as the better employers. It was clearly the case in all the people that we interviewed that hiring an au pair was the solution to their own employment or lifestyle needs rather than an active choice to host a cultural exchange. Many of the people interviewed worked irregular or unusual hours, for example Pilates teachers or theatre directors, and the au pair was a very useful way of ensuring flexible childcare was available early in the morning or in the evenings, for example. While the majority of people interviewed could be classed as middle class, it was still the case that household income and the size of their homes had influenced these childcare decisions. By that, I mean that all the people interviewed had hired an au pair because they couldn't afford a nanny or hourly paid childcare worker. They'd settled upon an au pair because they had the space to host one and they'd realised that their relative property wealth could be used to subsidise their childcare requirements. So host talked about the pay and the, uh, that they offer these au pairs. Um, employers pay between nothing, board and lodgings only, and £105 a week for between 25 and 30 hours a week on average. The employers we spoke to tended to uh, talk about their arrangement in slightly more generous or conservative terms than the au pairs talked about or the ad data revealed. While hosts were dependent on au pairs to allow themselves and their partners to work, and were generally appreciative of their au pairs, they still didn't really see it in terms of uh, understanding that what the au pairs were doing was work that allowed them to go out and do productive labour in a different setting. They never really vocalised it in terms of 
the au pair's doing work at home so that I can do work somewhere else. It was kind of fudged in terms of she's helping me with the children, she's helping me at home, uh, rather than it being explicitly articulated as a kind of, a kind of work in the home. Employers had high expectations. Employers all expected the au pairs, they, were, they, talked, they hired to be proficient in English to a very high standard. And this was quite striking given that the au pair scheme was, had been set up primarily, or at least partly primarily, to, to facilitate English language learning. But employers really talked about it in terms of my children are very verbal, I need someone who can talk to my children. I don't want my children going to school having not spoken English in the home. So English language, being very proficient and being able to talk to children and encourage uh, children to, to develop their own English was a real priority for, for employers. They also had high expectations in, uh, in terms of their parents being able and interested in doing the kind of uh, care for young children. So preparing healthy and nutritious meals rather than just um, putting a pizza in the oven. But this was hard, to, the kind of expectations of employers, of these young people looking after their children to be really good uh, house, housewives or house husbands, to be able to cook really well and to do the homework and engage in all these kind of enriching activities, was at odds with the age and life experience of the young people available as au pairs. So hosts wanted somebody young enough to be comfortable living as a very junior member of this household, but this, for these youth to be accompanied by a kind of maturity and sophistication and patience with young children, as well as practical things like being able to cook uh, child, you know, nutritious meals for young children. There's been new government guidance on au pairs since 2014, but it's vague and provides little security. Despite the vulnerability of these young women, there's almost no legal protection. The national minimum wage legislation specifically states that it does not cover au pairs. The legislation on working time, which comes from the European Working Time Directive and sets out that we have a, right, a minimum right to holiday, specifically says that it does not cover au pairs because au pairs are not defined as workers. At the same time that we have this growth in the number of au pairs in Britain and particularly in London, there is, there's been increased academic and popular recognition of all the, the myriad issues around the increasing numbers of migrant domestic workers. We know that live-in domestic workers are often isolated, exploited, overworked and sometimes physically and sexually abused. And au pairing has sometimes been excluded from these discussions about migrant domestic workers. And au pairs have been constructed in policy discourse as something more like students or working holiday makers. They're imagined as flighty young women who are having fun in a foreign country and not a mainstay of the work-life balance for thousands of British families or as people who are at risk of exploitation or abuse. This research project brings together two important issues for contemporary society, women's changing relationship to the home and paid work, and the growth in labour migration. It also shines a spotlight on emerging forms of social reproduction. That, after all, is the key role of work in the home, whether it's paid or unpaid. It was this that the final speaker, Bridget Anderson, of Oxford University explored. She pointed out that social reproduction though increasingly commodified and increasingly squeezed by neoliberal policies, 
is nevertheless essential to capital. Basically, markets depend on non-market relations. Fraser argues the latest phase of neoliberalism is mounting a major assault on social reproduction, endangering the socio-cultural processes that underpin affective dispositions and cooperation that create appropriately socialised labour. So the imagined boundaries that separated commodity production from social reproduction are being remapped. Social reproduction is being squeezed and further marketised. Across Europe, social expenditure cuts and public service retrenchment threaten the capacity of communities to care, at the same time as women are pushed into the low-wage service sector with threats of welfare sanctions if they fail to demonstrate proper engagement with the labour market. Of migrants, I think, both facilitates and uh, both reflects and facilitates the continued separation and obscurity of certain types of social reproduction. So, some types of social reproduction are high status and very sort of celebrated. So, I don't know, work in the media, for example, that's social reproduction, you could argue, um, but um, others are not. And migrants' labour, I think, might may be key to sustaining communities and even to the maintaining of welfare states, but they themselves are often excluded from accessing state benefits and are often even not legally residing in the state. Similarly, their presence in the home doesn't translate into a presence in the nation. Again, I think it's interesting when we think about the home as being sort of strongly imagined as the place where the nation is made, and yet it's an area where migrant workers provide so much of the labour. As well as re-examining the connection between paid and unpaid household labour, it's important to connect care work across different sites and types of care work. The people who interact with the person in order to ensure their well-being stretch across a continuum, from the doctor to the cleaner, each with their own hierarchies and specialisms. Looking across the full spectrum of care work, it's clear that some types of care are easier to contractualise than others. If you connect and compare the doctor and the care assistant, you can see, I think, that there are two models of status giving in care work, turning it into a labour of skill with attendant professionalised relation or turning it into a labour of love imagined as a familial type relation. A bit, again, this, I think, sort of maps onto the nanny au pair distinction. Those who are professionalised, such as nurses and doctors, generally have a career path and social recognition. In contrast, those who are part of the family may be doing work that is acknowledged as invaluable, but it is not reflected in its recompense or in their social status. A good care assistant may be valued, but that's not reflected in their pay. The work they do may be, um, as uh, Zelitzer puts it, emotionally priceless, but it is economically worthless. Bridget Anderson raised a last point of great importance and possibly a major block on achieving change. I've spoken to, I don't know, governments and European Parliament and so on, and actually you know that almost everyone there employs somebody. You know, that everyone there is going to be employing a domestic worker or have an au pair. 
Now, if this was no, no, nuclear power or something and they had an interest in it, they would have to state that interest and then recuse themselves. But actually, you couldn't have a policy discussion about mm. domestic labour if that happened. So, um, and it's, it's true kind of across... It's also true of trade union activists. It's also true of academics. You know, there's this huge sort of interest that everyone pretends that they're talking about somebody else because very often they're talking about themselves. But these connections, I think, we, I think we need to be more explicit about these connections and how these can reveal maybe overlapping as well as conflicting interests. There's a link to a full recording of this seminar on our website, www.podacademy.org. I only-